This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer in particular was the international admissions director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us. Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions and I'm now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet, in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had a supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes. But they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. 
As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community. And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently, and it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do, and thank goodness, I wish, I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country. And uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sapke uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop. I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup and next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter the older woman evidently had some form of dementia and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters after some explaining and finally understanding the elderly woman proclaimed you mean I'm a great-grandmother that's wonderful Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful. And it is, and we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And it's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men, the Corps of Discovery, along their 2.5-year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our third feature on what happened on these exact days in history, the period of June 12 through 24, over 200 years ago. Tuesday, 29th May. Rained last night. The river rises fast. The mosquitoes are very bad. This is the first time William Clark or anyone else on the Corps of Discovery said anything about the mosquitoes. More on this later. Then Clark's journal detailed the course they went on that day, which was his job every day, along with drawing a map of the river in real time while they were going along it. Here's Clay Jenkinson, the editor of We Proceeded On, the journal of Lewis and Clark Studies. What happens is that they have no GPS units, no satellites, no cameras. Uh, They do have surveying equipment, but they're moving uh, at a pretty good clip in a dangerous river. So the way it worked was that the Clark, who was um, really hired as a cartographer, he certainly emerged almost immediately as the, the cartographer of the expedition, he would take out a sheet of paper. They probably had a way of clamping it to something because the breezes would be difficult. And then he would look off, let's say they're at a bend in the river, and he'd look up to the next bend, which is a mile away or two miles away. And after a very short time, he could just understand that just by eyeing it, the likely distance between where he was and a a prominent tree or an outcropping or a creek coming in or another bend in the river. And then he would draw that. He would draw the stretch of the river from where he was until the next major marking and he did this with compass so that he could orient the map and discover where north was and so on and then he would have a number of these sheets and he would fill out the sheets as they went up the river then when they got to a place where they were going to spend a few days Clark would take out all of these field sheets and synthesize them into a a larger map of the country through which he was moving And you will not believe how accurate Clark's map would end up being from the sophisticated game of guesswork that he was playing. But we are not going to spoil you with the answer now. No, you're going to have to stay with us through their arrival to the Pacific Ocean to hear exactly how accurate it was. And it's all the more remarkable given how tedious the work was mapping every bend of that river almost every single minute of a 4,000-mile journey and back another 4,000 miles. Would you have the mental discipline to do that? It just seems nuts. It does to us, but, you know, I don't think Clark felt that way. First of all, that, that was his job. And so, you know, if this were just a lark, if we were just on a summer holiday in Montana, we might say after two or three days, oh, the heck with it. It's just not worth it. But because this is a, an Enlightenment expedition, and Jefferson's purpose is to get an accurate map of the American West, he insisted that it, it be accurate, that it show the prominent places that could be observed by somebody following in the steps of Lewis and Clark. He also wanted it to ascertain latitude and longitude of every recognizable place so that it could be 
incorporated into the emerging uh, master map of the world, uh, this was essential. This was not one of those things that you should do if you can. It was like Apollo 11 picking up some moon rocks just in case the expedition was foreshortened and they had to get the hell out of there. And we simply don't know what Clark thought of it. But he never once, in the course of his writings, and he's the writingest of the expedition members, he never once says anything that could be construed as frustrated at his role as the master map maker. So we just have to assume that he was a natural and that, he, you know, Clark was a man of duty. Clark from an early age had understood that there are duties in life and they're not always things that you want to do, like keeping diaries. And Clark, who was basically struggling to record his impressions in prose that could be understood by somebody else, has tremendous discipline. And he only misses 10 days in his journal in the entire course of the expedition. And he summarized those 10 days on the 11th when he got back from a winter hunting trip. So it's really, a, it's about temperament, and Clark's temperament was a dutiful one and a responsible one. And so we look in vain for any sign that this was tedious to him. Not that he never complained. Here's his journal entry five days later. I have a very sore throat and am tormented with mosquitoes and small ticks. The second time mentioning the mosquitoes. And still, no one else on the journey has mentioned it at all, let alone complained about it like Clark has. This is one of the most interesting things that I discovered in my own research on the differences between Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. So everyone is struck by mosquitoes. There are some slight variations depending on your blood type and what you're eating and so on. But for the most part, mosquitoes are equal opportunity bloodsuckers. They're all being bitten by mosquitoes all the time. And because the continent is still wilderness, the mosquitoes must have been thicker than you can possibly imagine. Clark frequently notes the mosquitoes and commiserates about them and sometimes whines about them. But he is journaling, unlike his co-commander. This will be our very first episode where Meriwether Lewis doesn't journal at all, directly disobeying his adoptive father and president, Thomas Jefferson. And as you'll see, it'll get worse. Clark, at least, is offering us a window into his life. It shows that Clark was a, he was human in a really agreeable way. People like Clark because he's willing to admit that he is in pain, that he's, his, his, his limbs are frozen, that he can't stand the buzzing or the biting of mosquitoes. This makes him a more accessible figure in the expedition than Meriwether Lewis, who has this sort of Apollonian detachment. Meanwhile, the other journalers from the Corps of Discovery are journaling, but unlike Clark, they're not journaling their complaints. Why not? Perhaps they didn't feel like they had license to. The journals were not diaries in the sense that I might keep one if I were wandering through the American West where I would talk about life and God and my human relationships and friendships and my regrets and my dreams and my insecurities. That's what people do in diaries. But these journals were official documents that were being written for the United States government. 
uh, on an official military reconnaissance mission into the American West. And so uh, it's amazing that we get as much personal detail as we do in the course of the journals because the men were not empowered to talk about their feelings. They were really providing backup narratives in case the master narrative was lost. So that's what they were doing. If the men had been keeping private diaries, they would grumble about the captains, they would grumble about each other, they might talk about their religious or prayer life, their bowel movements, uh, their sexual interests, and or the, the, the members of the corps they liked and disliked, and for what reason, who annoyed them and when, uh, whether they wish they had never gotten involved in a journey like this, or whether this was the greatest moment of their lives so far. Those things we would give anything to have, we would give anything to have the memoirs and the recollections and the oral histories and the day-to-day -day journals of all of the members of the expedition, but we don't have that. Well, we have our official documents of the United States government, and so the men self-disciplined the personal out of them. And Clark is sufficiently comfortable with himself and sufficiently senior, and he's been asked, virtually begged, by Lewis to be a co-captain on the expedition, that he feels it acceptable occasionally for him to express his own feelings and his personal responses and when we see them we cling to them and give them more weight than they probably deserve because we're so starved for those intimate personal details and don't tend to get them uh, from the, the journals that we have so you know it's only a few times that Clark talks this way but when he does every student of Lewis and Clark harkens to it, and, and on any sort of uh, Stephen Ambrose narrative of the expedition, moments like that just inevitably find their way onto the page because you'd be nuts not to use them. But whether they get the weight that they deserve is a really interesting question. And when we come back, more of this most epic road trip ever, the Lewis and Clark series. What a voice, what a story. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with our bi-weekly series on Lewis and Clark, the most epic road trip ever. June 4th, 1804, Monday, a fair day, sent out three hunters. This journal entry of William Clark seems unremarkable, but to the core of discovery, it was worth remarking upon. This almost daily notation of theirs of sending out the hunters was a daily hope that they wouldn't be eating the same tiresome staples they brought with them like grits. Here's the former editor of People magazine and Money magazine, Landon Jones. 
So the meals were not very appetizing, and, and they were spending, they were burning up a lot of calories. And so what they did really was rely on their hunters. And so there was George Julia and a couple of other of their men who were very good hunters. And they would proceed out in front of the uh, main expedition and basically shoot elk and deer when they could. And whatever their meal consisted of, their cooking and eating routine was the same. They were pretty disciplined. In the evening, when they arrived and made camp someplace, they would cook all the food for that night, but also the food for the next day. They did not want to cook while they were on the move and prepare meals on the move, so they, they did it then. And that meant they ate the same meal three meals in a row. Now, I love, love, love leftovers and easily eat the same thing two meals in a row, but three is brutal. And for them, they did it over and over and over again. The horrible part for me is you, you, you kill the, let's say you kill an elk. You kill an elk and you butcher it immediately and you eat whatever you can eat. Now you've got leftovers, so you're going to throw a lot of it away. But let's say that you have 15 or 20 pounds worth of elk meat left. How do you store that? There's no refrigeration. You can't smoke it. You can't salt it. So you wrap it in some rawhide and tie it up and throw it in the bottom of a boat. And then you travel 7 miles or 12 miles in 104 degree heat, water sloshing in and out of that boat. Then at noon you you eat some of that. Then you eat some of that for dinner. Now it's going off and you're still eating it. So that the food supply would not be fresh by our standards. And it would not be the taste that we're used to. It would be gamey, even when it was buffalo. It would be gamey because you're eating it so close to the kill. When I've When I have butchered buffalo, the first thing you do after you do the butchery is hang it up, preferably an autumn day, you hang it up for three or four days so that it can cure, and then and only then do you begin to consume any part of it. But they don't have that luxury. They have to eat before it's spoiled. Would their hunters catch anything this day? Before the rest of the core discovery would know that evening, they ran into their own question mark during their day, and most of their days, a wild Missouri river that was going five miles an hour against them. Here's William Clark. The sergeant at the helm ran under a bending tree and broke the mast. This is a very bad part of the river. The south side today is covered with rushes. Not very good. They didn't really know when they started this how challenging the Missouri River was going to be. Their rivers were things like the James and the Potomac and even the Ohio. And suddenly they're moving against the current, a strong current, of a river that is just filled with challenges. So sawyers, snags, sandbars, false channels, the banks are falling in and are crumbling around them. The current is murky, you can't see more than a few inches below the surface of the water. And so it's just a nightmare. I always say that when they had a perfect day when the men were working from dawn until dusk at the top of their bent and there were no discipline problems, and they encountered no native peoples, and and they had no accidents or no injuries, they might make 15 miles, not 25, not 30. On a good day against the current of the Missouri, they might make 12 to 15 miles, and that's when things went well. But in those early days, you can tell that they're not yet masters 
of the Missouri. And they're really taking too large a boat from the very beginning. We call it the keel boat. They never did. They called it the barge. It draws three feet of water. The Missouri doesn't really have three feet of water on a steady basis. It does now because of the damming. But then it's a very shallow river. And so if they had known all of this in advance, it's not clear to me that they would have produced a barge quite like the one that Lewis commissioned in, in Pittsburgh. But that was their boat, and they were stuck with it. Most of us, including me, have a perception of Lewis and Clark going down the river on canoes. But this was no canoe. This was a beast. It had a deck and a, and a bridge, and, and it, it almost looks like an ocean-going vessel. The keelboat carries the same amount of goods that will be carried by two semi-trailer semi trucks. And they loaded it all the way up with 60,000 pounds worth of supplies. If we were doing something like this in an RV, we would take more than we should. And then when we got to Great Falls, we would buy even more. You can always resupply at any point. But Lewis and Clark had no rational hope of resupply from the moment they left until the moment they returned. Even though they were carrying, thanks to Jefferson, a letter of credit, they never were able to spend it. And so they had, there's a payload problem, and you see it best in, in the film Apollo 13. What You can't ever take what you need. You can only take what you can carry. And the more you carry, the more men you need. And the more men you have, the more you need to take. And so there is a, there's a paradox of payload built into the very center of this. A payload that made it infinitely more challenging. When they'd hit a tree or a sandbar, and the keelboat with all of this weight wanted to crash down, and the men would jump out and fight to stop it. Or potentially worse for them, their unrelenting challenge of just trying to make forward progress going upstream with all of this weight. I've spent a lot of time leading cultural tours on the Missouri River in Montana in the White Cliffs section, and we go downstream in really high-quality 21st-century canoes with light loads because somebody else is taking the gear. And when the wind is blowing into your face, it is really hard to move down a river that's doing the work for you at about five miles per hour. Uh, people complain bitterly at the end of a of a day of headwinds, and I always, on the second day of these cultural tours, I always say, turn your canoe around and let's go upstream a hundred yards. And so everyone dutifully turns their canoe around and they try to paddle upstream even a hundred yards, and at the end of it, they can't believe how much labor they had to exert against the current. This is a very, very powerful river, even though it doesn't appear to be one. and. We have gravity on our side, but Lewis and Clark were fighting gravity, and they were fighting gravity going upstream at the time of, of the maximum payload. And it was the worst time of the year to do it. In the middle of the so-called June rise, when all the snow melts in the Rocky Mountains, it comes rushing down the Missouri. I think of those maybe day three out of St. Charles when the men realized oh boy, this is going to be an incredibly difficult thing. The river doesn't cooperate. The gear is almost impossibly heavy. Whatever we do, we can barely make progress against the current of this river. You know, if it hadn't been a military expedition, 
people would have slipped away and deserted, and probably they would not have been able to make even a few hundred miles against the, the current of the Missouri River. But because it was, they were stuck, potentially for years. But more immediately, wore their hunters going to bring home any fresh meat that night. Here's William Clark. Seven deer killed today by our hunters. This is Our American Stories, and when we come back, more of the Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever taken. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our The Most Epic Road Trip Ever series, following Lewis and Clark's journey west. And this episode, and most of our episodes, you've been hearing from leading historian Clay Jenkinson, who's generously offered his time to participate in this series. And in the last segment, Clay mentioned his cultural tours bringing folks along the Lewis and Clark Trail. And we wanted to plug his website, claydjenkinson.com where you can check out those tours. That's ClayJenkinson.com. And this country's filled with people like Clay, who know these stories inside out in their bones, because it's not just what they do for a living. It's their life, and their life's passion. And one day, our program, Our American Stories, would love to commission our own private listener tour with Clay. But don't wait for us to do it. Go to ClayJenkinson.com and take a loved one along with you today. And thanks again, Clay, for all you did to help us bring this series to life and all you'll continue to do. Now let's return to the final portion of our latest episode. It's June 8th, 1804, day 25 of their adventure, when William Clark entered this into his journal. This day we met three men. Those men had been hunting 12 months and made about $900 in pelts and furs. They were out of provisions and out of powder rained this night. That's almost $19,000 in today's dollars from the fur trade. I mean, they call it brown gold. But it also took them 12 months and divided by three men. And they were the lucky ones. A fur trading group the Corps of Discovery met earlier lost most of their yields in a prairie fire. All of their work laid to waste right before their very eyes. The fur trade was one of the world's first global industries, and people fanned out from England and Scotland and Ireland and France and Spain and other places to the fur-bearing waters of the, of the world, in Siberia and North America, etc., and extracted beaver skins. And the beaver skins were by far the most lucrative and, and the most desirable during this period. And when you step back and think about that, that there was a global industry of quite a bit of danger and certainly hardship 
with people going hundreds and even thousands of miles into uncharted territory to bring back beaver pelts that could then be manufactured into gentlemen's hats. You shake your head to think of it's sort of a the triumph of Adam Smith that there's a perceived market and then there are people who will go do that. You know, I, I can barely work up the strength to order something on Amazon.com, much less you know, penetrate a howling wilderness with native peoples who are not always happy about it to trap and, and, and stack beaver skins and somehow get these heavy skins back to a trademark of some sort. But that's what happened. And so Lewis and Clark ran into some of these people. People that perhaps didn't realize the true value of their work. They'd often sell it to middlemen in St. Louis who went on to sell it in New York for 10 times that price. And then in China, it would then be sold for 10 times the New York price. And these fur trappers weren't getting in on any of this action. They weren't getting any of the upside from these markups. The losers are always the trappers themselves who go out and maybe get killed and maybe don't and maybe lose a few fingers in a harsh winter or get bewildered out there or attacked by an animal. Uh, But they usually bring back enough pelts just to just to get another supply of new equipment, to get unspeakably drunk. Um, but they, very few of these fur trappers ever got a leg up and moved into the middle classes or the entrepreneurial classes. A few of them did. But for the most part, they are unskilled workers in a difficult place and who live essentially from hand to mouth. But the markup of these things is just stupendous. and. It makes perfect sense in kind of Adam Smith's world that the scarcity of a beaver skin in a place like London or Edinburgh or Paris means that if that's the fashion, people will do what it takes to get them. And it's the middlemen and the John Jacob Astors who have the wherewithal to take full advantage and get the profits out of a trade like this. Here's William Clark. 9th of June, Saturday. Set out early, water very swift. Struck a log which was not perceivable. Struck her bow and turned the boat against some drift and snags which were below with great force. This was a disagreeable and dangerous situation, particularly as immense large trees were drifting down and we lay immediately in their course. Some of our men, being prepared for all situations, leaped into the water, swam ashore with a rope and fixed themselves. In such situations that the boat was off in a few minutes, I can say with confidence that our party is not inferior to any that was ever on the waters of the Mississippi. And here he is two days later, having more bouts with nature. June 11th, Monday. As the wind blew all this day from northwest, which was immediately ahead, we could not stir, but took the advantage of the delay and dried our wet articles, examined provisions, and cleaned arms. My cold is yet very bad, the river beginning to fall. Our hunters killed two deer. George Drury killed two bear in the prairie today. Men very lively dancing and singing. Clark frequently writes of their hunting and the inspecting of their arms in his journal. These aren't noteworthy. But this is the first time on their adventure that he's written something like men very lively dancing and singing. Why? Was it because they killed two bears, or was it just because? We don't know, and likely won't ever know. According to Clay Jenkinson, though, it wouldn't be an uncommon event 
on their journey. The young men, average age is I think 24, they're, they're men of the frontier. You know, Lewis explicitly said no, no gentlemen and if possible unmarried young men, people with a strong threshold of pain and, and a capacity for hard physical work. And so that's what they got. They got splendid specimens. It'd be like getting a group of Navy SEALs or Green Berets or Marines, but it, it, it's not the sort of thing that you just have a bunch of people sign up for. And these are, for the most part, men at the height of their testosterone. They are at the height of their physical lives. They're just spectacular specimens of young manhood. And so even though they're spending the whole day in this kind of backbreaking labor, uh, once they get fed and form the, the guard, the, the perimeter, and dig the latrines and make sure that the camp is secure, as often as not, uh, Cruzat or one of the other fiddlers would start something and the men would sing or do boasts and toasts or tell yarns or probably get in fist fights and some sort of elaborate male ritual of insults and sort of the alpha male pecking orders. But they also danced. I always find it astonishing that after a, a very, very, very hard day in the wilderness, in labor that probably none of us could sustain, then they have so much leftover physical energy. And you have to say this carefully, but, but these are young men with a tremendous amount of testosterone and they're lonely. They're lonely for female companionship. And so they dance and they would pair off and, and dance frontier dances and so on. I'm not suggesting sexual activity, but what I am suggesting is that we need more than labor, we need recreation. And recreation is something that they had participated in all of their lives by way of frontier musicales and dances and festivals and drinking parties and so on. And so they wanted that recreation in spite of the level of fatigue. It's astonishing. And Lewis and Clark probably didn't write down a list, we need a couple of people who can play the fiddle. But it turns out they got a couple who could play the fiddle, and this probably made a material difference. The, the social dynamics of the expedition are understudied and exceedingly fascinating, and you just have to wonder if you could have been sort of at the edge of the, the camp looking in and watching those dynamics play themselves out. Uh, this had to be fascinating because there is always a pecking order, and there are always people who are liked and disliked, and there are always people who are jokers and shirkers and posters and people who are bullies and people who are meek, uh, people who are prayerful and, pe and people who are blasphemous. And all of those dynamics undoubtedly played themselves out. There's no suggestion that they were repressed. It's just that nobody bothers to write about it. So we barely ever get to get a glimpse into that world, but that world certainly existed. And if we could be dropped into the expedition, those are the things that we would most want to determine. There might have been some extra testosterone flowing after you had an encounter with a couple of bears, or with a bison, or with a rattlesnake. You know, that kind of excitement probably added to the need for the government-issue ration of whiskey, and the sort of letting off of, of the steam of exuberance and early manhood that, that certainly was taking place in those events, but we just, unfortunately, don't know nearly enough, enough about them. And great job on that, Alex, and my goodness, thank you, Clay Jenkinson.
And thanks for all that you do for so many people. And again, to learn about Clay's tours, go to ClayJenkinson.com. That's ClayJenkinson.com. And we're going to send some folks from the crew out with Clay Jenkinson. Something tells me Jesse's nodding. I think he wants in. He's an outdoorsman, if ever I've known one. And what an adventure this will be. And what an adventure these guys had. Because, again, no GPSs, no cars, no maps, no nothing. They just went out there. And we'll carry this conversation along further with Clay as we continue our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever, here on Our American Stories. stories and those are two sounds that we love here the sound of great gospel music and if you remember where and when this song was used best in a movie well it's secretariat and secretariat came to us as a shining example of aristocracy big handsome full of charge he walked with style stood tall and displayed the best manners on paper he wasn't perfect losing five of his 21 races as if to say I'm only human. But to the eye, he was perfection itself, and when he performed, he took our breath away. Yet some may ask, how could he have been voted 35th among the 20th century's 50 greatest athletes? Furthermore, how could a horse place a close second behind Wilt Chamberlain's unimaginable 100-point game on ESPN's Who's Number One list of greatest sports performances by an individual athlete? And the answer, because he was Secretariat, more than just a horse. On this day in history, Secretariat won the Triple Crown in 1973. He had a kind of a princely quality about him, physically, mentally, he had the temperament, he had the physique, he had the heart. He had brilliant speed, great stamina. The girths which are made by saddlers wouldn't fit him. They had special ones made to go under that big belly. It is said by experts that he was the perfect horse in measurement. You could look at Secretary and you knew that he was something special. In addition to being an extraordinarily uh, good runner, uh, there was a very imperious uh, look to him. It had a big flashing copper coat on him, and when the sun's rays hit him, it was a beautiful thing to see. It was the way God intended to, uh, to make a horse. You 
can't anticipate greatness. You can't really define it, I suppose. It's something that, that, that God, every once in a while, sticks in somebody. And, uh, and because it comes from God, um, the gift can't be ignored. And it can't be defeated. And the great athletes use it, even if they're not human. So true. And despite the universal praise ultimately lavished on this horse in a million, his career began without fanfare on July 4, 1972, as his trainer, Lucien Loren, looked on from the owner's box. He made his debut as a two-year-old at Aqueduct. And unfortunately, he had some trouble in the starting game, got banged around. The rider did a terrible job. Had him in trouble the whole way. I mean, he was, you know, never had a chance to run, and everybody saw it. On the outside, it's Quebec 6th, followed by Fleet Royal 7th. Version is 8th. Jacques Coup on the inside, 9th. Secretariat is 10th. Lucian got up and he kicked the chair across the box, and he said, Damn, that horse should never be beaten. And that's when I knew that Lucian thought we had a really good horse. Secretariat's chief problem in his life was he was handled by people. Had he been handled by someone other than flawed human beings, he would have been undefeated. After finishing fourth in his all-too-human debut, Secretariat won his next two races, the second under a new jockey, Ron Turcott. But it wasn't until the Sanford Stakes in Saratoga Springs, New York, when the horse that would capture America's heart gave us just a glimpse into the future Here's Secretariat's jockey. I was sitting behind two horses. I started to make my move because it was an opening. And when them two horses come back together, they just ricocheted off him. And it's just like nothing happened. He went on and won by himself. That was the beginning where he really impressed me. Ronnie Turcott wins it aboard Secretariat under the wire, the winner by three lengths. He separated himself uh, from the rest of the crop pretty effectively, especially his races at Saratoga that summer. By the time that he approached his third start, then it was happening. I mean, then there was a lot being said in this red horse that Lucian Lauren has, and uh, could be something special. You know, it could be. In the middle of the racetrack, Secretariat with a rush moving to the leaders. They come down to the top of the stretch. Sunny South has the lead by a neck. Here comes Secretariat on the outside, rushing to contention. When Secretariat made his move in the hopeful, it was unlike any move that I'd ever seen a two-year-old make. It was uh, the kind of a move that you just t- it takes your breath away, that you could hear the collective gasp from the entire Saratoga Grandstand. It was just like, wow, did you see that? They straighten away in the stretch, and Secretariat takes the lead by two lengths. He circled the entire field in 22-1 and one for a quarter, going around the turn about eight wide, and you don't see any horse, let alone two-year-old, do that. Physically, he was mature beyond his years. He was clearly the dominant two-year-old in America. There was a sustained interest in Secretariat, and he was anticipated to... Uh, as a, a real triple crown potential horse uh, right along. For a two-year-old to become horse of the year, he can't just be a very good two-year-old. He has to break the mold. He has to do something really sensational and different. Secretary, it looks like a two-year-old who could turn into a super horse. Beyond his explosive acceleration and lofty bearing, Secretariat exuded a human dimension that quickly gained him national fame. Secretariat just had a regal way of standing before he was going out to work out, and uh, he looked like he was in charge. He was beautifully balanced, 
and had this rich red color and the interesting blaze. But the best thing about him was his eye. It was incredible. All of a sudden, he'd be looking at stands. He'd walk down, slow down, finally come to a little halt, like he was saying hello to that pretty girl in the stands. Every time he heard a camera, he turned. He'd stop and turn. I saw a secretary once watch an airplane fly overhead. I'd never seen that before. He had that star quality about him, sort of like the movie stars arriving on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. He would look over, give you the perfunctory, it's me, good to see you, gotta go. Instead of a bit player uh, on the New York stage, he would have probably been an English stage actor doing Shakespeare. If he could have talked, he'd have been a son of a because he was arrogant. He was the heavyweight champion of the world, is what it was, and he knew it. And when we come back, more on Secretariat's life. We do it all here on Our American Stories, and you can't wait to hear the rest of this great story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue the story of Secretariat. And why are we doing it? Well, why not? And rarely do you hear my opinions about anything, but there's nothing to me like being at the far turn of a major sport, sporting event called horse racing. And by the way, this has never changed. You know, you watch an NBA game and commercials ruin the momentum and the flow. You watch all kinds of other sports. There are no commercials in the middle of a two-minute race. You see it from beginning to end. No one and nothing can change it. If you ever get a chance, go to the Kentucky Derby, go to Santa Anita and see a great race there, and bring a lady, and just sit at that far turn and watch these beasts roar a race around that turn with jockeys sitting on a, on a horse going 35 to 40 miles an hour, and they're practically riding them bareback. It is something to see. On this day in history, Secretariat won the Triple Crown in 1973. And let's pick up the story... That marquee quality sparked investor interest throughout the racing world. In early 1973, shares for Secretariat were sold for a record total of $6 million. Then, after winning his first two starts of the year, the unexpected happened in his Kentucky Derby tune-up at Aqueduct Racetrack in Queens, New York. Here's Jim Gaffney. Secretariat's exercise rider. The day before the Wood Memorial, I worked him a, an eighth of a, a three-eighths of a mile, and I had to kick him to, to make him work, and I never had to do that. And I told the foreman, there's something the matter with this horse. I said, you better have him checked out. And this word never got back to Lucian Lawn. Ronnie said the horse was acting funny in the gate, and every time he pulled on the rein, he jerked his head back that he had never done that, and he couldn't understand it. 70 yards from the finish, it's Angolite in front, Sham on the outside. And here's the finish, Angolite holding on, winning it by a neck. It's a big upset. Secretariat finishing third in a photo. And as you can imagine, the investors weren't thrilled. I mean, they had just popped down $6 million, and in this tune-up to the Derby, just a terrible run. And they thought, what have we done? Well, with the Derby just two weeks away, serious questions arose about the jockey's ability to guide Secretariat to victory in the first leg of the Triple Crown. Secretariat's trainer, Lucian Lauren, didn't know what to think. But others were losing confidence in the horse. Secretariat came to Kentucky with a huge number of detractors. 
all of a sudden, Lucian Lauren brings him into Louisville, and there's just all this uh, uh, controversy about uh, rumors that he might have hurt himself uh, in the Wood Memorial. And, and Jimmy the Greek at that time was going around telling people the week of the Derby that the horse was lame. This horse was such a great two-year-old. He was horse of the year as a two-year-old. And now he's coming in here with a chance to be maybe the greatest thing since Man of War. But you can't block out all these rumors, and, and you wonder, what's going to happen here today? Well, with all those negative rumors, Secretariat was still a 3-2 to two favorite to win the biggest race of his young life. And by the way, the biggest race in racing. A record 134,000 hummed with expectation. This is Churchill Downs, Louisville, Kentucky, on this first Saturday in May, 1973. I'm Jack Whitaker, and this is the 99th running of the Kentucky Derby. Moments from a start. Secretariat is in the gate. Mike Gallant is moving in. Secretariat throws his head a bit. They're at the post. And they're off. For the lead. On the inside, that's angle light for the lead. He broke dead last. And he was dead last after a quarter of a mile. Then Forgo on the outside, Navajo, followed by Secretariat. Into the spring of his three-year-old year, Secretariat really started making up his own mind. He seemed to understand racing and seemed to want to dictate his own strategy. Secretariat is fourth and moving up on the outside and is now third and moving at the leaders as they come for the head of the stretch. They're at the head of the stretch and Cham is the leader. He leads it by a length. Secretariat is in the center of the racetrack and driving. And then he made this tremendous move and we knew that we had seen something historic and maybe perhaps we were going to have a great triple crown winner. Now and there's the stretch, it's sec Secretariat. Secretariat on the outside to take the lead. Sham holding in second. It's Secretariat moving away, he has it by two and a half. And I read back and hit him a couple of times. And shoot, he just took off, I just put my stick down and he, he went by two and a half very easily. Sham, then on the outside, our native. That's the wire, it's going to be Secretariat. He wins it by two lengths. Secretariat just broke the old Kentucky Derby record. People were looking at the tote board. He ran the last quarter mile in 23 seconds, which is unprecedented in the Derby. Secretariat did something that no horse ever did. He went each of the five quarters faster. It justified logic. Another quarter mile he might have taken to the air and flown, which is obviously what was in his blood. As the first horse to run the mile and a quarter Derby in under two minutes, Secretariat turned what had been uneasiness in Louisville into confidence in Baltimore. He went off as a 3-10 to 10 favorite in the Preakness Stakes at Pimlico Racecourse where I lived just six miles away and spent my favorite Saturdays of my life for eight years. This is the tightly turned second leg of the Triple Crown. Well, it's almost ready. The horse is just about to move into that starting gate. The weather is perfect and we're just waiting for a fine horse race. Secretariat was still running with an explosive style and centrifugal force would carry him wide on the turns and Pimlico is considered to have tighter turns. That was the one I was worried about. And they're off. Oh, the early lead. That deadly dream on the outside at Coley Taj. Then it's also torsion on the outside. In the Preakness, he broke last again. Now he's going to the turn. You think it's going to be the same thing as the Derby. Then our native and Secretariat is last again as they move into the first turn. Turcotte took a hold of him made it almost an imperceptible gesture with his hands, like a man adjusting his cuff. 
took the horse to the outside and he went boom. He went from last to first in about 180 yards. Cham under an easy hold right now, but here comes Secretariat. He's moving fast and he's going to the outside. He's going for the lead and it's right now he's looking for it. He just accelerated and just circled the field and I said, good Lord, what is Turcotte thinking about? I mean, this horse is cooked because you just didn't see a horse ever make a move like that, especially in the first turn. It was far too early for him to have been moved strategically. Ronnie wouldn't have asked him to run that soon in the race. It had to be what the horse wanted to do. Secretariat holding it by a length and a half. Here comes Sham second on the outside now. Now it's Secretariat the leader by a length and a half with Sham moving into second. Once I get to the lead there and I just drop him on the rail and just turn his head loose and he went back to galloping his old self. You know, he just loping alone. You know, I kept thinking Belmont. Secretariat by two lengths. Sham driving second. There's a strong left-handed whip again by Tinkai. He goes to it time and time again. But Ronnie Turcott has his whip put away. And Secretariat has him put away. He's beginning to draw away. It is Secretariat. He's coming to the wire. He wins it by two and a half, almost three. He went into another level of, of consciousness in the uh, public eye. There were actually kids standing on the rail as he came by. This horse had now captured the public, not just a racing crowd. Secretariat did it again today. He won the Preakness at Pimlico, and he's now two-thirds of the way toward the Triple Crown. Expectations were very high for any horse, not just Secretariat, to win the Triple Crown. After 25 years since Citation had won it in 1948, there had been a lot of very good horses that had tried to win and failed. Winning the Triple Crown seemed almost impossible. It uh, was tantamount to the 400 hitter in baseball or the DiMaggio 56 game hitting streak. This was something that uh, most Americans had finally concluded will never happen again. No one will ever win the Triple Crown again. And by the way, they thought that because of specialized breeding. In each of these races, if you're not a race fan, the Kentucky Derby is what you'd call the mid-length race. The, the Pimlico is the sprint. And then the Belmont, it's a mile and a half, which is forever for horses. And so horses, as they became more specialized in the breeding, well, it just became to seem that it was impossible to have one horse do all of these things. And that's why it had been so long. Many people, people speculate that uh, there had been a Triple Crown winner, and why it's still so hard today. And we had American Pharaoh do it just recently. And by the way, you want to hear a terrific story. Me, my dad, and American Pharaoh, New York Times column written by a guy named Gary Ginsburg, who is an executive vice president at Time Warner. And he recalled all those days at the track where he and his dad would go down to Aqueduct or Belmont. He was a New Yorker. And they'd always wanted to see a Triple Crown winner. And, well... His father saw one with Secretariat, but didn't really live long enough or good enough quality of life to witness American Pharaoh. Alzheimer's had sunk in, and, well, the dad got to watch the race with the son, but the dad had no idea what was going on. And so it was a really a lament of times past and a common passion between a father and a son, whether it's fishing, horse racing, whatever it might be. I take my little girl to horse racing. Uh, as often as I can into great horse races. And when we come back, the greatest of all the horses, Secretariat, after these messages.
Not since Man of War in 1920 had a horror so captivated the nation. Now, the 1 to 10 favorite had a chance to succeed where seven horses failed since 1948 to win the Belmont Stakes after taking the first two legs of the Triple Crown. June 9, 1973, the Day of Reckoning, broke bright and clear. By post-time, millions of Secretariat fans put their money where their hearts were, some for the first time in their lives. Of the 70,000 that overflowed the stands, a few had been at the track since sunup. I was there at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was there all night. I fell asleep against a tree by his barn. The fittest I have ever seen a horse. His eyes were big as saucers. His nostrils were flared. He was nickering. His ears were playing. His muscles were rippling. And he's walking around on his hind legs. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, what are we going to see today? Before the race, you could see not only what Secretariat meant to really veteran, hard-boiled, you know, step over a guy with a heart attack so don't get shut out at the window betters, okay? But also with people who were at that track who were not gamblers, who brought their kids because it was Secretariat. This was the people's horse. Everybody wanted to see him not only win, but do it in a way that would really be authoritative. I'm looking at him and I think, I've never seen him walk like this before. He looks like the execution man. He's going to the gallows. <laughs> He's about to dispatch somebody. And they're off. Looks like the early lead goes to Mike Gallant. Yes, Mike Gallant going for the lead with Price and Press on the outside. Secretary in a way very well has good position on the rail and, in fact, is now going up with the leader. Sham had been such a tough competitor for him in the first two races. Uh, he wondered, would this finally be Sham's day? My instructions were uh, to, 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 to be very close to Secretaria from the way go. And now it's Sham. Sham and Secretaria are right together into the first turn. Mike Allen has third behind them. Then it's twice the Prince, and the trailer is private smiles as they go by the turn. He just felt like running. That was the day he felt terrific. I said, just leave him alone. I said, just take a long hold and let him run his own race. Ron Turcott, he let him run. Come on, let's see what he's got. You've done the Derby, you've done the Preakness, come on. Let's see how he goes all out. How good can this guy go? They continue down the backstretch, and that secretary is now taking the lead. I looked at the teletimer and saw that the horse had gone three-quarters of a mile in 109 and 2, which is the fastest three-quarters of a mile ever run in the Belmont Stakes, and he's leaving Sham at this point. They're moving on the turn now. For the turn at Secretariat, it looks like he's opening. The lead is increasing. He is running and running and running. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, he's lost the horse. Three and a half. He's moving into the turn. Secretary and holding on to a large lead. Jam is second and then it's a long way back to Mike Allen and twice a trip. And I'm thinking, he has gone insane. And I'm saying, I'm cursing him under my breath. You moron. What are you doing? You know, you're going to kill the horse. You're going to lose the triple crown. Don't you know how fast you're going? Nobody knew that that was going to happen. Uh, not the rider, not the trainer, not the owner. Or I think probably not the horse. Secretary is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretary by 12. Secretary by 14 lengths on the turn. And he still has a quarter of a mile to go. And I'm thinking to myself, he's going to totally collapse in the stretch. He can't keep this up. 
and I'm asking other guys around the track, what are you thinking? And everybody to a man is thinking, he's going too damn fast. Secretary is in a position that is impossible to catch. He's into the stretch. Secretary leads his field by 18 lengths. Lucian said to me, oh my God, Ronnie, just don't fall off, don't fall off. Finally, after I turned for home, my curiosity got the best of me. I had to turn around. When I look at it, I scare myself. Twenty-five lengths in front, and here's the fallout. I believed in Pegasus that day because I saw him. I, mean, I never saw anything like that in my life. Thirty-one lengths. I mean, it's a, think of what that. I mean, that's unbelievable. It's like it's like they were racing on two different racetracks. It was like the Lord was holding the reins. Secretary was one of his creatures, and he maybe whispered to him a, a go, and that horse really went. It was really an almost supernatural uh, experience. It really was. I leaped up out of my chair at Belmont Park, shouting, we'll never see this again. And I get to the elevator to go down to the winner's circle, and I'm standing next to Pete Axtell. And he said, I used to think that the Ali Fraser fight in Madison Square Garden was the greatest thing I've ever seen. This was even greater. Everybody was speechless. And then, when it set in, people were crying. I actually saw people crying at this event. I mean, it was such an overwhelming thing. There were these co-eds lining the rail. And this sounds hard to believe, but I swear half of them were weeping as he went by. Jack Nicholas once called me over and said, you were at the Belmont, you saw that race. And I said, yes. And he said, I was all alone in my living room watching. And as he came down the stretch, pulling away, I applauded, and I cried. And Haywood said to him, in a, in a brilliant moment of epiphany and insight, he said, Jack, don't you understand? He said, all of your life, in your game, you've been striving for perfection. And he said, at the end of the Belmont, you saw it. When you beat a track record, you normally beat it by a fifth of a second. He knocked two seconds, maybe two and a fifth, off of the track record and won by 31 lengths. It was... There, there's no horse in the history of horse racing that could have ever beaten Secretariat on that day. You're not supposed to win majors by a dozen strokes, you're not supposed to score 100 points, and you're not supposed to win the Belmont by 31 lengths. The desperate way in which the losers were so beaten and so battered by this horse, it was the Confederate Army staggering home after Appomattox. I mean, these are all flowery, ridiculous things, and you could say, hey, it's nothing but a horse race. I'm sorry. This horse was an athlete. But this is more than a story about a great American horse. This is the story of a great American team, the team's leader, Penny Chennery. In 1971, with her father a victim of Alzheimer's, the family's horse farm began losing money. Chennery's siblings originally planned to sell the operation when their father could no longer run it. Chennery, however, wanted to try to fulfill her father's dream to win the Kentucky Derby. The housewife and mother of four fired longtime trainer Casey Hayes and hired Roger Lauren to train and manage the Meadow Stable horses. 
Lauren helped to cut costs and return the operation to profitability before leaving. In May of 1971, Chenery hired his father, Lucian Lauren, and in 1972, they guided the Meadow Farms Colt Reva Ridge to victory in the Kentucky Derby and Belmont Stakes. Again, it was a great movie script to have Reva Ridge. Indeed, her farm manager, an old Mr. Gentry, said to me after 1972, well, I'm sorry, Haywood, from Miss Tweedy. Next year, she knocked me. She had all that excitement with Reva, and next year, she got nothing. And, of course, nothing was Secretariat. Were it not for Penny Chenery, I think Secretariat would have been as famous and as popular a racehorse, but I don't think we would have remembered him in quite as completely a satisfying way. Penny was the perfect owner for Secretariat. Uh, she was this... Uh, uh, attractive, uh, intelligent, uh, gracious woman, and I think because of her, probably a lot of the women in America really became interested in secretary, maybe more than they would have been had there been uh, a man owner. I hope I've been a role model for women, but it just was never in italics in my uh, game plan. I just happened to be a woman. And that was Penny you were listening to, and when we come back, a few more thoughts on Secretariat, and then we will play you that me, my dad, and American Pharaoh segment we talked about earlier, uh, the last Triple Crown winner, of course, American Pharaoh, and we're talking right now about the greatest Triple Crown winner of all time, Secretariat. This is our American Stories, Secretariat story, continues. In November of 1973, just 16 months since his inauspicious debut, the big chestnut retired and was set to stud at Claiborne Farm in Paris, Kentucky. Shortly after, the Today Show arrived to do a hit on Secretariat. Here's NBC's Tom Hanman and Dick Enberg. And uh, we set up right uh, by the Secretariat paddock. And it was one of the great performances of all time because it was like he knew he was on national TV. He sat there and he posed with his head and his ears and it was like the star knew that the red light was on, it's time to perform. I asked Seth Hancock, now how could you tell? I mean, they all look so magnificent. How, how could you tell that Secretariat was any better than anyone else? He says, you know, it's their eyes. You know, the great athletes have great throwbreds. It's their eyes. And as he said eyes, Secretariat snapped his head and stared at me like that to say, and you better believe it. Just look me right in the eyes. And, and he told me then, he said, even out in the field when they feed the horses, they wait till Secretariat eats first. In the fall of 1989, Secretariat became afflicted with laminitis, a painful and debilitating hoof condition. When his condition failed to improve after a month of treatment, he was euthanized on October 4 at the age of 19. We decided we'd bury him at 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning. You look at everybody's faces and tears rolling down the cheeks. And, you know, but that's that. You know, you bury him and uh, you be thankful for what you had and go on back to your job and see if you can come close to getting your hands on another one like him, which will never happen and you know it, but that's what you're in it for. Secretary was given the rare honor of being buried whole, 
Usually only the head, heart, and hooves of a winning racehorse are buried. The autopsy revealed what every poet knew, that his heart was huge. At 22 pounds, his heart was two and a half times larger than those who ran so far behind him. When I did the autopsy on the Secretariat, we were quite astonished. He was certainly unusual. He was almost a, a freak in nature, but a freak in terms of being so abnormally perfect. He had a larger motor, and he was able to crack up oxygen and synthesize it faster and more efficiently than any other horse I've ever seen. He just had a superior power pack, and he was showing it to the world. I wonder what he thought. He must have had a sense of accomplishment. Every now and then some athlete is touched for a moment with a kind of higher level of greatness which they may never achieve again, but at that moment they were more than life allows. It was the same thing that Babe Ruth did for baseball. There's someone that everyone can relate to, think about, be amazed about. And that's what he did for racing. And he really brought American people around, well, around horse racing and actually just brought them together. And that brings us to our American Pharaoh story that I talked to you about before. Gary Ginsburg, the executive vice president of corporate marketing and communications at Time Warner, tells the heartwarming story of he and his father and how they spent summers at the racetrack. And again, American Pharaoh, another Triple Crown winner. Well, here's Gary lamenting about the life 40 years later of he and his dad. Into the stretch, and American Pharaoh makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong. Frosted is second with one eighth of a mile to go. American Pharaoh's got a two lane lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole, and here it is. The 37 year wait is over. American Pharaoh is finally the one. American Pharaoh has won the triple crown. When American Pharaoh crossed the finish line in Belmont Stakes on June 6, 2015, becoming the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years, I cried. After talking with friends who also watched the race, most of us men in our 50s and 60s, I discovered I was not alone. Many of us were overcome by emotion and, as it turns out, mostly for the same reason. We were thinking about our dads. For a generation of American men born during the Great Depression, racing was much more than a five-week diversion from the first Saturday in May to the first Saturday in June. It was an obsession. And the obsession was shared with us, their children, so that in many cases, horse racing came to define the relationship we had with our fathers and the little free time they had to share with us. For me and for so many of my friends Saturday, the one person with whom we all wanted to share this historic moment was no longer by our side. The joy and thrill of the race was tempered by a profound sadness. My dad, Erwin Ginsberg, has had four great passions in life. The law, tennis, his family, and thoroughbred racing, though not necessarily in that order. 
horse. He developed his fascination with horses as a kid in Buffalo during what was arguably the sport's heyday. Following the exploits of horses like War Admiral and Citation, between the ages of 7 and 18, he had already witnessed an astonishing five Triple Crown winners, and he was hooked. He wanted to make sure I got hooked too. It's a beautiful Sunday, the one day of the week he didn't go into his law office, was race day. We'd pile into our Chrysler New Yorker and head from our home in Buffalo to the Fort Erie racetrack in Ontario. Once there, Dad would walk me through the intricacies of the racing form, speed ratings, past performances, class levels, before placing a series of exotic bets on the fillies and mares traveling the hard-bitten southern Ontario race circuit. When he lost, which was more times than not, he'd angrily crumple the betting slips, ending up with a small mountain under his seat by the end of the day. That horse, named Secretariat, is the reason why one of the greatest crowds in horse racing history has turned out here at Belmont Park in New York to see a... But we were in front of our Zenith TV for the best race of all, the 1973 Belmont Stakes. Secretariat had already run the fastest Kentucky Derby and Preakness in history and came to the race of champions as the prohibitive favorite. For my dad, it represented the best chance to end a 25-year Triple Crown drought. My 11-year-old self sensed the moment's historic significance, so I brought my tape recording. And you will see Secretariat being led. He is number is two, but he goes into the number one post. Listening to that cassette today, I can hear the tension in my father's voice as the horses make their way to the starting gate. He yells at me to move away from the screen, though the race is still a minute from post. We're ready to go for this tremendous Belmont stick. Then the race starts. And it quickly becomes a two-horse contest, with Secretariat pulling away after the half-mile pole. We're quiet at first. But the silence breaks when I shout, he's going to win. My father shushes me, and we both go quiet again until Secretariat rounds the final turn. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 lengths on the turn. Sam is dropping back. My father starts repeating, oh my God, oh my God. But Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. While I'm unable to control my prepubescent excitement, I begin screaming again at the screen. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. In the years that followed, we watched Seattle Slough and Affirm win their Triple Crowns and continued our Sunday traditions at the track, eventually with me adding to the mountain under our seats thanks to my paper route earnings. Then I left Buffalo for college, law school, and life in New York, and another Triple Crown drought set in. A decade ago, my father found out he had Alzheimer's. His mom, dad, and brother had all had the disease. He had feared it his entire adult life, and now he was to suffer the same fate. He was forced into a retirement he never wanted. But his love of horses endured. 
three summers running, I took him to the Saratoga race course until the betting became too complicated for him. But the Belmont still held a special place. Even as his brilliant mind declined, twice he managed to travel by himself from Buffalo to New York with hopes of witnessing one more triple crown alongside his son. And twice we were denied. Standing side by side, watching first Smarty Jones and then Big Brown lose in heartbreaking fashion, were among the happiest moments of my dad's retirement and of my adult life. Victor, you just won the Belmont Stakes and with it, ended the 37-year drought and got your first Triple Crown finally. Just after the Belmont this year, my face still flushed from crying, I called my mom in Buffalo to see if dad had watched. No, they hadn't watched the race. He wouldn't know a horse from a rabbit, she said. Instead, they were sitting at the table having dinner. My father oblivious that his 37-year wait for another Triple Crown winner was over. Well, you might not be able to feel how fast he's going, but I can feel how happy you are. Let's go to Kenny Rice. I started to cry all over again. And thank you for that. Me, my dad, an American pharaoh, and secretary at horse racing for the hour storytelling like only we do here on Our American Stories, and great job as always, Greg and the team, for all the work they do. On this day in history, Secretariat won the Triple Crown in 1973. 